We're back in our series, In My Place Condemned He Stood, The Biblical Pattern of the Atonement. This is part four. I have a longer text than I would normally read in a Sunday morning sermon, but you you need the whole story to make some of the points I'm going to make. Otherwise, they'll just kind of, they'll hang in the air as like my opinion, but you won't see them rooted in the text. And my opinion doesn't count for beans. The biblical text counts more than gold. Passover and the meaning of the blood. Passover and the meaning of the blood. It's significant to me, you won't remember, but after three weeks on giving, I I took a little time in the third teaching in this series to explain why we need to look at Passover. Jesus, he's getting ready to have what we call in our services the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. He gets his disciples ready by saying, I have a Passover I want to celebrate with you. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, If you want to understand my coming death, look at Passover. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and calls Christ specifically the Passover lamb. So Paul, Jesus, then Paul is saying, if you want to know what Jesus is doing on the cross, you've got to think of the Passover. Those are just a couple. I gave you several references where the New Testament constantly says, there's all sorts of things that you could look back. You could look back to the sacrificial system in the temple, all the different offerings, the things that take place. And yet the New Testament with one voice says, if you want to understand that cross and what Jesus accomplished, look at the Passover. So that's what I want to do. And that's a long explanation of why I'm reading a pretty lengthy text. But follow it, because it matters. You'll see that it matters. Exodus 12, and I'm going to look at 13 right through 28. God's giving instructions through Moses, but God's giving these instructions. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I, the I is God, when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then, of course, Jesus, with the fresh New Testament application, says, you you do this till I come back. So so that emphasis still kind of hangs in there. 15, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month, at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a foreigner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, 
and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. By the way, when you get through some of your Psalms and it talks about wash me with hyssop, you see, and you go, what is this hyssop? It, it's the branches that they used to put the blood on the doorposts. And even in the Psalms, they still think about this. Anyway, that's just a tidbit. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you, for your sons, forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. It's quite a story. If there is a single sort of mountain peak of truth that elevates itself above all the details... It's one that we focused on four weeks ago. There are two deliverances featured in this Exodus account. You have to see that. And the second one is more important than the first. First, Israel is delivered from the tyranny of Egypt. That's where the book Exodus gets its name. Second... Israel is delivered from the wrath of God. This is where the study of those previous plagues is really pretty significant. The earlier plagues were sort of automatically selective in falling on Egypt, but not on Israel. That is, Israel is spared these forms of God's judgment simply because she is Israel. Egypt gets punished. Israel is spared. But then, this account, the one that finally forces Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave, this one isn't delivered selectively at all. At least, not on the basis of ethnicity or Jewishness or favoritism. No one household of Israel is spared God's judgment simply because it is a Jewish household. The blood has to be on the doorposts. The blood has to be on the doorposts. And we're meant to learn, we're meant to learn from that, if the New Testament is right, that no one just escaped God's wrath and God's judgment by any personal claim at all. That's made abundantly clear in the text that I just read. For the Lord will pass through. Did I miss a verse? This is the one I wanted. Yes, yeah, sorry. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's Israel. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see the blood. 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees 
the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to destroy you. So, no one, the point is, no one automatically qualifies for deliverance. Not in Egypt, not in Israel. Oh, they escaped many of the earlier plagues simply because they were Israel, but not this one. Without the shed and applied blood, text pretty clear, everyone will mourn that night at the sting of God's judgment. The point that is made by divine revelation, the point that Moses is to instruct into the next generation, the text says, it's a simple point and a direct one. No one escapes divine wrath unless the blood of the Lamb is shed and applied. The blood of the Lamb is the only hope for everyone that night. You can see that again, 25 to 27. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is, it is for the passed over, the houses, he passed over, sorry, the houses. Sacrifice of the Lord's Passover of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So here's some of the truths that I want to unpack from this text. One, the whole account of this first Passover in the Bible, referred back to in the New Testament, it's created to reinforce the concept of a substitute bearing the wrath of God. If, if you think back for a minute, you'll remember I said there were two concepts with substitutionary atonement that kind of grate at the modern mind and much of progressive religion. The first is that, that we are all under the wrath of God. I don't know how it gets denied. John 3.36, very clear. The wrath of God abides on those that aren't in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. So the first unacceptable truth is that we are under the wrath of God. I'll come to that in a minute. And the second offensive idea is that Jesus dies on the cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. That is, he offers up. He freely chooses. No one takes my life from me, he said. He freely chooses to offer up his life for my sins, sins he didn't commit. And so now we're standing at the very threshold in this text of the unfolding revelation concerning God's passing over, trusting people when his righteous wrath is poured out. The central idea, the center that gives meaning to the whole account is that a lamb, a lamb must give its life if the firstborn is to be spared. You can't miss that in the text. There's simply no way of skirting around that grand plot. All of the details unfold around it. So you could sum up the whole account of these chapters in Exodus like this. Judgment falls on the lamb or it falls on the household. 
but judgment gets expressed. Judgment falls on the lamb or it falls on the household, period. God nowhere asks anyone to approve of this plan. He doesn't ask people to vote on it. He just, he just reveals it. It's the way God works. He offers no other plan other than the shed blood of the lamb. And by the way, that's still the way it works. We're meant to see that connection. So that's the simple evidence of this account. The lamb must die. We know this because God makes sure we know it. They just can't wound the lamb. They can't just draw some blood from it. We know that because they're afterwards specifically told they must eat the lamb after they've killed it. So, so the blood is a symbol of the lamb's life offered on their behalf. All that to say that whether we like it or not or agree with it or not, that principle of substitution is just stamped all over that Passover account. Something, the lamb, or someone, the firstborn, will die. And God, in his merciful plan, draws attention to the blood of the lamb. In doing that, God knows that he himself will come one day. God was in Christ. He will come himself to pay the price of his own holiness. Like those first dwellers in those blood-stained houses, we are saved from God, by God. Let me try and put this just in theological terms, just for a second. I read that whole Passover account, that long account, so that you would see there's nothing, there's nothing what theologians would call expiatory about it. Expiation is the theological term given for the removal of sin. That's called expiation. And while there are certainly are many, many reaffirmations of divine forgiveness in the scriptures, this text isn't one of them. I hope you noticed that. When I read it through, this text says virtually nothing whatsoever about forgiveness. The word is never used in the text because it isn't a text about forgiveness for our sins. The blood on the doorpost doesn't cleanse the hearts of those dwelling in that house. It proves the death of a substitute wrath bearer. So, in other words, this is, a, this is a propitiation text. This is a text dealing with God's justice, God's wrath, more than it is a text dealing about with my forgiveness. It's a text about avoiding God's wrath. It's not a text about receiving God's forgiveness. It's a text about avoiding God's wrath. That's why the lamb has to die. Okay, two. While only the firstborn is visibly struck down, we're made to contemplate the one-to-one -one correspondence between the lamb slain and each individual in the household. So, so the lamb must die because there has to be some way for God to make his judgment visible. His, his, his holiness, his wrath is not wrath in theory. It's not something that just bottled up until he forgets about it. 
and God's wrath is not just the natural unfolding of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. There's nothing in that whole account to fit in with that more progressive interpretation of God's wrath. None of the deaths recorded in this blunt text are from old age or disease or sickness. Those explanations just don't work. Because people are inclined to put their own spin on God and to define his nature and actions in terms that they find more palatable, in this text, God works to shatter any illusions that he finds our sins as judgment neutral as we see our sins. The deaths in this text remind the whole household that God's judgment had to be taken more seriously than they were naturally inclined to take it. I mean, this was a big deal. Perhaps above all, the death in these verses was just the graphic proof that contrary to our rationalizations, God's love didn't actually provide automatic protection from his justice. You can't play one attribute against the other. There would be no escape looking to hide under the covers of divine mercy and love, canceling out God's wrath. I bear no ill will but I've wondered lately, what would have happened in this account? What would have happened in the household that refused to bow before these instructions that God gave regarding a substitute? What would have happened in some household of some devout Hebrew soul who had just read Greg Boyd saying, how is the view that God requires a kill to have his rage placated, essentially different from the pagan or magical understanding of divine appeasement found in primordial religions. Greg Boy's not unique. That, that's the same. It's in the box. It, they take exactly the same interpretation, progressive evangelicals on this account. <laughs> Would that have saved the household if they had argued like that? They would have woke up in the morning with the firstborn dead. Would God change his plans because they came up with a different theory, different logic? Well, no, wouldn't have changed anything. That's why we, we really need that blunt account. I said, that's why I read it. We don't need someone's opinion. We need just, what did God say? But if the firstborn or substitute was the visible lesson in this account. The text shows that the firstborn wasn't the only one needing the Passover lamb. There's a reason for the inclusion of so many details about how this lamb was to be cooked for a meal. It's in verses 3 and 4. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th month, 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, 
you shall make your count for the lamb. The number of persons, not just the firstborn. These instructions are designed to show the relationship between the slain lamb and the number of individuals in the house. Why could this matter? Why does that matter? Well, because while the firstborn was the visible picture of God's wrath on those who don't cling to the divinely appointed substitute, the total number of family members was accounted for in the provision of the lamb. There was a one-to-one relationship between the substitute lamb and every individual in the house. In the Exodus account, we're meant to see that this is a calculated number. All the members of the household are to be taken into account with the substitute lamb. I'd like to say more on that, but I can't. Three. The Passover meal and the coming Lamb of God. Though it doesn't get considered in detail very often, there is significance in the way God instructed this Passover lamb to be consumed. I want to look at it with you. It's in Exodus 12. I want to look at 5 to 11. And then just to save time, 46 and 47. So Exodus 12, starting at verse 5. You got it? Got it? Okay. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So they raise this lamb. It's in the household. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Same day, same time, everybody. Seven. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, listen, with its head, its head and with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation shall keep it. Here's what I want to say. A. First, the lamb was to be roasted and presented at the table in its entire complete form. What is that all about? The lamb was taken into the household 14 days before it was killed. Think about that. It was a perfect specimen. It was supposed to be. 14 days. You ever ever seen somebody today who comes home and they bring a puppy. And they bring the puppy home and they give it to the little children. And the little children name it. And they play with the puppy and they feed the puppy. Now, forgive me, but imagine, imagine the dad comes in and says, 14 days, the 
puppy's doomed. We're taking this puppy out of here. Like, what is going on here where you have the lamb? Why not take the lamb, the father goes out, gets the lamb, goes into the barn, kills the lamb, puts the blood on the doorpost. Wouldn't that do the same thing? What is this? Bring the lamb into the house and keep it 14 days with everybody. Feed it, clean it. It's not hard to imagine children especially growing attached to a very young, beautiful, flawless lamb. Here's the thing. We might find this offensive. God's idea is the lamb was to be recognized when presented at the table. A lamb diced up and cooked in a stew or boiled in a broth would just be seen as a meat dish of some sort. But the lamb, roasted in one piece, complete, intact, head and all, would be painfully remembered as the same lamb that had come alongside the family in absolute perfections shortly before. So, so the family... The family was being made to build a mental bridge between the beauty and perfection of this lamb and the sacrifice of that lamb. All right? The beauty and perfection of the lamb. They're made to connect that same lamb as the sacrifice. So the meal was to be eaten in a manner that recognized, that remembered, that couldn't forget this great substitution that had taken place. All were made to consider the innocence of that lamb as they ate it. What did he do wrong? It had done nothing to deserve its death. It was loved. And so those who partook weren't delivered by accident or birthright or by their own achievement. That same perfect lamb is the one who died to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, Pastor Don, I think you're stretching it a little bit. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter writes to the church and he says, knowing, so he's, he's thinking this will be a point of understanding in Christian people knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. And, and notice, by the way, notice that word, not just forgiven. That's a very deliberately chosen word, ransomed, bought. You were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. See this? like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You'll see in coming weeks that the New Testament, especially our Lord himself, calls us constantly to look specifically back to Passover, look to that account to see the meaning of Christ's death. We're not doing guesswork here. Okay, B, here's what else I see in the way this is cooked and eaten. The bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt and the cost of living as redeemed people. Living as delivered people was a freeing experience, but it would not always be an easy experience. And so just 
as this meal reminded them of their deliverance, it also foreshadowed the idea that such redemption would frequently run against acquired tastes and habits and cultures and patterns. It wouldn't be easy. It would be free, but it wouldn't be easy. Third, the bones of the lamb were to remain unbroken. I see that in Exodus 12, 46. It, that's the Passover lamb, shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. There might be someone wondering, are we really handling these scriptures correctly here? How do we know these details actually apply to Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb? I mean, perhaps these rituals are just nothing more than Jewish practices at that time. Are we forcing details, reading into the New Testament these details from the book of Exodus? Actually, the Apostle John kind of helps us here because he picks up this detail. None of the bones of the Passover lamb shall be broken. He picks it up and specifically applies it to Jesus. So we know we're on the right track here. John since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. John talks about himself. His, his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's quoting Exodus. So are, are, are we on the right track with this interpretation? The apostle John, who was there, he says, yeah, exactly. That's the point. So we know we're not guessing here. I mean, certainly Jesus could have redeemed us by his death, even if his bones had been broken. I would think. He gave his life. The other two who died with him, their bones were broken. So that's not the issue. The issue has to do with the time of Jesus' death. Try and follow this, because it's really important. The point John is making is that Jesus died, unlike the other two, Jesus died at exactly the same time that that first Passover meal was eaten. The account of the bones not being broken is given so that we might have another clue that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the same Passover lamb in the Exodus account. Here's how it works. Christ died on the day of the Passover during the very hours when the Passover sacrifices were being offered. We know that from Exodus 12, 6, that the Israelites were to kill the lamb, it said, between the hours, between 3 and 6 p.m. The gospel writers are faithful to record that it was 3 p.m., the ninth hour, that Jesus uttered his cry, it is finished. So he was alive at 3 p.m., and he was dead and taken down from the cross before 6 p.m. 
The point being, his death coincides exactly at the same time with the death of the Passover lamb in Exodus. The very same time. This is where the importance of the unbroken bones comes in. Soldiers broke the bones because, the text says, the following day was the Sabbath, a high Sabbath day, and it was considered a breach of ceremonial law to have a dead body exposed on that Sabbath. Because angry, soon-to-die criminals knew this, their last act of vengeance and spite would be to try to prolong their death by propping themselves up with their feet so they wouldn't suffocate on the cross, which was the actual cause of death. So to keep them from doing that, soldiers would come and break their legs. Unable to support themselves, they would quickly die and be removed from the cross before the Sabbath. That's the whole idea. But they didn't do that with Jesus. And the reason they didn't do it is he was already dead. So we have a timing thing here. The Apostle John's point is that Jesus' death automatically mirrored the death of the Passover lamb in the Exodus account. So we're scripturally just and accurate to do what we're doing today. Jesus is set forth intentionally in the New Testament scriptures as the exact fulfillment of that Passover lamb that died as a substitute. There's one final point. Point number four, eating the Passover at supper time, but being dressed for breakfast. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This is all God's idea. That's the point there, the Lord's Passover. Here we see the realism of the atonement. True, Passover lamb died as the divinely appointed substitute takes the judgment. In that sense, the primary action isn't located in anything I do. It, it's this principle of replacement that shines. My spot under wrath taken by someone else. That's the point. But these verses say something else. If the lamb bears God's wrath people themselves need to be ready to move out in a new freedom. There's stuff to do when you've been delivered. That's the meaning of the way they're to be dressed as they eat this evening meal. This is the night of their atonement. This is the night of their deliverance. They will spend the night where they are. They will all stay, the text says, inside the house. They can't even go out. But they are to be dressed in such a way that they won't have to take time to prepare in the morning. The whole point seems to be, just as the Passover lamb stands at the end of one life, it stands at the beginning of another one. Jump into it. I hope, I hope, if nothing else, that I've at least led you to the point where you're willing to say, 
New Testament really does make a big deal of this whole Passover thing. I wonder if that's the reason. I wonder if that's what John the Baptist meant when he sees on the horizon and he goes, Behold, the Lamb of God. And we just think of all those Old Testament sacrifices. Fair enough, there's nothing, there's nothing illegitimate about that. But the rest of the New Testament will flesh that out where specifically that Passover lamb, the one that died as the substitute, bears the wrath of God. And we, having been delivered, we sang about it today. We sing these words. It's not just being forgiven. Delivered. Delivered from what? I mean, I know I needed cleansing. What did I need deliverance from? And how did the cross provide it? And then move up to walk in new life. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Of course, you'll see in future weeks, he accomplished a lot more than that shed lamb in the book of Exodus ever could. That was just a substitute on that occasion to teach these lessons. In Christ, he bears God's wrath, but he does more. He ushers in a new kingdom in a way a lamb never could. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way a lot of altar calls are given, which is something like this. Here's the wrong way. If you're here and your life is just messed up and you're hurt and you're confused and you really feel, boy, do I need help. I hope Jesus can come and, and lift me up and help me out. I need, I need Jesus, Pastor Don. And the problem with that is not that it's untrue so much as it's incomplete. Here's why, here's why you, need, you need Jesus. Your life might not be, might not be messed up at all. Your life might be in better shape than mine, physically, financially, emotionally. But you still need Jesus because apart from the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, you are under God's wrath. John 3.36, just read it. He's going to come back as judge. And in his mercy... God the Son came into this world and died for your sins. He took God's just wrath. It wasn't a temper fit. God's holy wrath. He bore that. And he's the only one who can deliver you in that sense. Because, like me, you're mortal. And like me, you're a sinner. And those are the two things that Jesus came, to die for your sins and to rise from the dead to give you eternal life. And you can't get that anywhere else. So as I pray, follow along with me, okay? And let's just say these words together. Heavenly Father, your word is true, deeper than my own feelings. It reveals my heart. I'm a sinner I cannot save myself. I need your grace and mercy revealed in Jesus Christ who 
died on the cross for my sins, who made me right with God, come into my heart, and as you give me strength, I will live my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.